Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join our hosts, Phil Dark and Kelly Stewart. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast, where we seek to help you navigate the orphan crisis with experts from around the world. Well, if you're listening in the U.S. today, you guys know that today is Election Day, and so we are really excited uh, for the opportunity that we have to go out and vote and also just to um, be aware of issues and the things that we can do to impact uh, the country that we live in. And our guest has a little bit to say about that as well. So, Phil, why don't you share uh, who we have on today? Yeah, so today we got Gabe Lyons. Uh, he's the co-author with David Kenneman of Good Faith, and it really talks a lot about um, how to engage in culture. It's uh, a similar uh you know, idea and theme to what we had with Russell Moore a few weeks ago. Um, but he talks a lot about how to really engage others um, when they think that you're irrelevant and extreme. And he's going to go into that today in our in our conversation with him. Very excited for everyone to hear that, uh, particularly given, you know, the fact that a lot of you will be listening to this after Election Day. And my prediction is not necessarily who's going to win, but I think it's a very safe prediction that there's going to be over half the country is not going to be happy with the result. And um, a lot of people, there's going to be a lot of divisiveness. And so I think that Gabe's words today and the words that he and David wrote in that book are very, you know, they're, they're as relevant uh, today uh, as they ever will be. And so I just, I, I really enjoyed my conversation with him. And I know that you all out there will as well. Um, in addition to that interview, we got... Uh, a, a, an interesting mailbag question. We've got thoughts from the field from Herbie Newell of Lifeline Children's Services, and we got another uh, book recommendation, the Phil and Kelly recommend section. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about all of it, and I know that uh, we got we got our mailbag uh, question today, and it's, it's really this one is um, really a conglomeration of several questions that, that I've seen and it's relating to a video that I've uh, many of you may have seen on Facebook it's a, it's it's entitled how volunteering abroad in orphanages is harmful to children and really the question that several people have have put in in the comments of that video as well as other questions that I've heard and have read from from those of you out there um, really go around the idea of of is social media the the right place for videos like this or other things that are um, either short um, status updates or things like that 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 don't necessarily go into all the uh, complexities of these issues that we're dealing with in orphan care. So Kelly, what do you think of that? Well, I think that the I guess the emergence of social media as a way to get our thoughts out there, as a way to process, as a way to share um, what we ate for dinner, all those things, um, there's good and bad with it. And I, I feel like, especially something as hot topic or emotion um, inspiring as uh, volunteers in an orphanage, a three-minute video to me is more about um, becoming a kind of a hot button, I guess, or just trying to it, give one extreme point of view, and it doesn't have the ability to really unpack all the complexities of this issue. And so, 
I, I will say, I think some things like this have the ability to get people's attention. And from there, you can have a conversation. But I do think you have to be really, really careful. And I'm just not sure that something as um, as divisive or not divisive, but just as um, that we just need to be really tender to. And that's kids who are in an orphanage. So I just don't know that a three minute video really gives justice to that. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think there's so many nuances in all of this work. And, and a couple of the comments that stick out to me are one was a woman who goes to Haiti um, every couple, you know, twice a year, I think she said. And she said, I, I, I've established relationships with these people. They basically become family to me. And I feel like that's really how we've developed that relationship. And I, I think that's one area where, you know, that, that could be a great thing if done properly. It could be, you know, it could be like extended family for these children, which is it could be a tremendous value. And and I think you and I have both talked with different people over the last few months for this podcast where, you know, people, several people who I know have shared this video and this video is very much against, I mean, it straight up says, you know, you should not do missions trips to orphanages and institutions. And part of the issue is it doesn't define what it means by orphanage and institution, which is, you know, Kelly and anybody who's ever talked to me about these issues, that's one of my biggest pet peeves is failure to define terms well. And so I think that it doesn't do that. And and part of, and I, you know, it's really hard to do that in three minutes. And that's part of the issue with these things is you can't fully develop the issues and you can't fully develop the conversation in a short little video. And that being said, I think you hit it on the head. And, and I know Gabe talks about this in his interview today uh, as well, which is, you know, social media can serve a great purpose, but it can also potentially cause issues that aren't that don't need to be there if we can actually sit down and have conversations and get to know each other and actually um, have have, you know, these conversations about these complex issues um, so we can dive into it together and understand what we mean when we're doing it. And one of the things that comes to mind in this was the interview with uh, Rebecca Nepp and Todd Guggenberger, where they were actually able to sit down and talk through these issues because those are two people that would very much have contrasting views about this video. But at the end of the day, they agree on a lot of things about even short-term trips. And so, you know, last week in Troy Livesay's interview, he talked a lot about short-term trips and the potential good that could come out of them when he and Tara, his wife, have had a lot of really uh, strong blog posts about, you know, against short-term trips. And it's really just to understand more deeply what uh, people really think about these issues is really hard to do via social media, which is why, you know, I don't like to have any debate whatsoever on social media. And I think there's, there's good reasons for that because it's really hard to do so. Same reason you don't want to do it over email or text because tone is really hard. Um, all the nuances are really hard to, um, to address. And so there was the other one comment that I really stuck out to me was somebody who's saying something similar to what I just said, which is, which is, you know, the nuances are really hard to get across in a three minute video. So either have a video that shows everything and shows the full story or don't do it at all. And I, I tend to agree with that, except to your point that it can get people talking as long as you provide the forum for that talking. So maybe to show a video like that in a class or maybe show a video like that in the context of a conference or the context of a dialogue to say, hey, what do we think about this? Then it could serve a great purpose. So, you know, what, what do you think? I agree. That? I think that 
I think the reality is that social media is so oversaturated with things like this that a lot of people will maybe watch it, click a like button and move on. Like it, it does it really mm-hmm. serve the purpose that it's it's meaning to serve. And and probably the majority of people who watch this video aren't planning on going on a mission trip to an orphanage anyways. And so you know, I think it just depends on on the topic. I think it depends on the audience. Um you know, I think it raises the questions, but then, you know, like you said, there's people commenting. Um, so do we want some, you know, producers of a video to give the answers to this? Or do you want to go to someone who's actually on the field in um, in these countries actually doing the work to answer the question? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so for me, it's 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 that you put something out there, but there's really no ability to follow up individually with people and actually answer the questions that you've just raised. So I'm probably one that's like, I just don't think I would think a whole lot about it if I, if I watched it and then, um, and just moved on with the rest of my day. And so I'm kind of with you on, I think you either do something really in depth or you don't do anything at all. Yeah. And I think things like this too could cause paralysis for people that really want to do mm-hmm. good work around the world and not sure how to do it. And so they watch something like this, say, all right, well, I'm just going to throw my hands up and forget it. Cause if they're, you know, I don't want to, I don't want right. to hurt a kid. And, and I think that, you know, there's somewhere in the middle is that truth of, 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 you know, there is potential harm, but there's also potential good. And so let's really work together to figure out what that looks like. And I think that's the good part about things like this. It is starting mm-hmm. the conversation with, um, with us, but I, I just hope and pray that it doesn't stop people that really God has something planned for to, to just be paralyzed from, from work. So Anyway, on on that, we could talk all day about this, but we're not going to because I want to get you guys to my interview with Gabe. And I so look forward to you hearing this, engaging this, and understanding how we can engage others um, in really tough times where it's very divisive times. So get out your notes, um, notepad and pen. And also, if you have any comments on any of this stuff, we so welcome your your input. We so welcome your comments, um, whether it's through the website or through emails or through the comments on Facebook. Um, please get them to us. And we thank you for your engagement in these tough issues. So without uh, more from us, here's Gabe. Hey, Gabe, it's great to have you on the show today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, good to be with you too, Phil. So, Gabe, I know that uh, a lot of our audience may not have heard of you and uh, what Q is and what Q's doing. Um, and personally, Q has definitely made me think deeper on a lot of issues, and I look forward to everyone hearing a little bit about you and a little bit about Q today. Um, so, before we get kind of in the meat of the conversation, can you just briefly share your story and how uh, you got to be doing kind of all things Q today? Well, Phil, I mean, my story goes back. I'm now 41 years old, so I'm starting to feel like I'm getting a little old. (laughs) But as I look back on the journey God's taken me on, I mean, I grew up in a Christian home, had a great church I was a part of, uh, always sort of, you know, was living within this bubble of Christianity. And most of the people I knew believed the same things I believed, thought the way I thought. And it was really in my 20s as I left that area and, and ended up working in and beginning my career in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, that I started to just see that, man, people in my generation could care less about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe in the little bubble I lived in before, everybody was a Christian, but now it seems like no one's a Christian. And at least 
the very mention of faith to a lot of people I was around was, was really something that turned them off. And that just sent me on this journey of trying to understand what is happening with the 20 something friends I have and my neighbors. And uh, I care deeply about people coming to know the truth that we can find in Jesus and in scripture. And yet felt like a lot of people didn't see that and didn't care about it. And it almost felt like maybe we were part of the problem. It was the Christians who were keeping people from actually accessing this truth. And so long story, very short, uh, I launched an organization a few years after that, uh, focused on this very challenge of how do we help the Christian faith become more accessible, understandable, uh, relatable to a generation that has really given up on faith and religion and don't see it as an important and critical part of their life. Mm-hmm. And we did that under this organization called Q. Q stands for questions. And we wanted to create space where we didn't just dogmatically tell people what to think, but we invited people in and said, let's explore the big questions, the questions every human being has always had, such as, where did I come from? What went wrong in the world? Like, why is there problems and pain and evil? You know, how do we fix this? What's the solution here? And and how do we as human beings get along and work together and be a part of doing something good together? Um, and, and answering questions that people always have throughout time and space, like, what is my purpose? Like, what is life about? And so Q now over a decade has been a place where we're bringing together leaders in every kind of industry you could imagine together with church leaders and these cultural leaders and just people people who want to understand more about where their generation's going with faith. And we try to have very serious conversation and learning around the issues of our time and what it means to be faithful and to learn how scripture relates to it, to learn how history of the church relates to these topics and issues, and to just essentially say, hey, God's put us here in this moment. How do we be faithful? How do we help other people experience the freedom and the flourishing? lives that that we get to experience through Christ. Um, And Q has been the main hub for that. And we do conferences and we have an annual event every April. This year we'll be in Nashville coming up uh, April 2017, where we just invite people who are interested in the conversation around how do we as Christians engage our cultural moment? How do we do that well? Can come and find that conversation happening and meet a lot of other people who are doing so many creative things to see their faith expressed in a variety of, of areas that many people would never even think faith was a part of. And so it's very exciting. It's inspiring. Uh, and I think for the moment we're living in right now, it's becoming more essential for, for leaders to have that space to dig into these kind of things. Yeah, no, I, I know. I'm glad that uh, one of our mutual friends, uh, I remember about it's probably 2009, um, Nick Purdy out in Atlanta just said, hey, you got to go to this thing. It's it's uh, called Q. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he explained it, though, and it sounded like a great thing. And I'm so glad he did, because all of those things you said and more, I think it's it's been a phenomenal place to go to learn, to network, to be able to connect with people who might think very differently than you. Um, and probably we'll find many people thinking very differently, but at the same time with common purposes to see kingdom building. And so thanks for getting that going and for being faithful to God's call on that. Um, and the one thing I, that I think you neglected to mention, or maybe I just didn't hear it, but you to talk about Q Commons for a minute and what you um, kind of have, have done with that over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, Phil, I mean, it's been probably the most exciting thing that we have seen kind of in, in the evolution of Q was we were doing this national event, leaders were coming to it, 
they were learning, they were inspired, but you know, the, all, the problem always happens with any kind of an event. You go back home and you're like, okay, I want to apply this. I want to do this with my friends. I want us to be talking about these things. And we found that we had a real opportunity to just empower and equip leaders in their own cities to go out and start leading their own conversations around these big questions. And uh, that began two years ago. And I'll say just most recently, we had our latest event uh, in October 2016. Uh, we had over 150 locations. We had global cities participating from Sydney, Australia and Johannesburg, South Africa to Edinburgh and Berlin, Germany. Um, all the way to major cities and small towns in the United States. Uh, we had college campuses hosting this night, and what took place was we at Q broadcast three talks. And so Q Commons essentially allows us to bring the best of what we can bring to a national and a global conversation about faith and culture. Um, so we had Lecrae talking about racism and how is it that we as Christians can speak to that. He's a hip hop artist. We had Dr. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist and author, sharing about how Christians can respond to the division that we're experiencing in our world right now. Uh, and we had a conversation around politics, uh, mm -hmm. speaking to um, how much 2016 has Divided and how is it that we're going to come together? Um, you know, now that this election is is uh, done, now that we're moving into a new phase of American life, and and what does it mean for us to come together and work together? And how can people of faith respond well and be a part of the solution that we understand politics actually isn't going to solve, and it's going to come down to us in our local communities being in relationship and friendship, working together around common good activities and being exposed to the things in our cities that are broken, that are unjust. And so at many of these locations, they, they then choose three local speakers that come from their own community, their own town, and essentially host a, a town hall meeting. And so we end up having over, you know, a hundred town hall meetings happening on the same night, addressing these questions of faith um, and culture. And, and many times our speakers locally, they may not be a Christian. It can be a mayor of a town or a police commissioner or an education superintendent, but they're the experts on what's actually happening in their city. And we believe as Jeremiah 29 speaks out, you know, that we, we actually have a responsibility to seek the flourishing of our cities. Right. And so Q Commons is a vehicle that leaders can use to do that. And so that continues to grow. Well, our next one will be in fall of 2017. And so anybody listening that has a heart for these kinds of things, connect with us at qcommons.com because we would love to partner with you, teach you a little bit about what we're learning and what these other leaders are learning as they start to become voices in their cities around common good activity and how people of faith can engage culture really well. Uh, and we'd love to talk and listen and learn and see if there's a way we can support you as you continue to do that. Yeah, and I, I strongly encourage that as well. Uh, it was the coolest thing this year. I wasn't able to go in my hometown here in Sacramento, but I was visiting some friends, and my wife had a reunion out in Colorado, so I was able to hit the Denver Seminary Q Commons and actually connected with someone who hopefully will be working on a project together. So it's it's really amazing to see how that has taken shape, and just from a little idea, a little seed, to now, like you said, 150 countries. That's just awesome. So, or 150 locations, sorry, not 150 countries. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's the goal. Hopefully we get there someday. Um, <laughs> well, recently, I know you've written a couple books, three books actually, right? If I'm not mistaken, you got Unchristian and uh, The Next Christians. And then recently, you and Dave and Kinnaman have, have written your second book together um, called Good Faith. And, uh, you know, tell us a little bit about what led you and David to write Good Faith and, and what's your vision for the book? 
Yeah, so good faith, the subtitle, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme, was the second book that David Kinneman and I have done together. The first was Unchristian, as you mentioned, and David is the president of Barna Research. And, and one of the fun things we've gotten to do just through our friendship is come together and take the best research, the most recent research on faith trends, spiritual trends, but also understanding generationally what's taking place uh, as people consider faith. And combining that to say, here's a, here's a picture of our context. Here's where we're at. And, and part of what we reveal in this book is how much people have labeled Christianity as an irrelevant faith that really doesn't have a lot to say to their normal life. It's somewhat meaningless to them. Um, those who are Christians, they go, you know, go and do what you do, but it's fine. It's, it, it's, I think you're naive. I'm not sure it's really making a difference, but it's nice. And if you want to have faith, go have faith. You know, that's sort of the irrelevant perception over the last three decades that's slowly been growing. But we really talked to something new that we've seen develop on the horizon. And that's been just in the last two years where the word extreme is now being used very casually to describe historical biblical beliefs that Christians have always held to, but in our current moment are not that popular. And so we, we have a pretty uh, in-depth um, chart in the book that really lays out almost 25 different um, themes of how people are seeing people of faith as irrelevant and extreme. You know, so for example, if uh, you are to speak to a stranger about their faith or want to convert them, six out of 10 Americans think that's an extreme activity. You know, 52% believe if you hold that same-sex relationships are morally wrong, then you're extreme, you know. But then 42% say if you were to quit a good-paying job and actually go pursue missions work, then you're extreme for doing that, you know. And so mm -hmm. it's it's an interesting word that's being used a lot, and I think we can see why with the growth of ISIS in the Middle East and a lot of media discussion about how religion is leading to violence around ISIS People are now starting to correlate that and say, well, maybe faith is dangerous. If faith actually leads these kinds of things to happen because people are so devoted to something that's transcendent, that's that they believe is faith in something that they can't necessarily touch or feel, but that's guiding them to make decisions about their life. That sounds scary. That doesn't sound something like something we can put in a box and control. And so there's a fear about it. And so this book helps Christians understand how we can have confidence in our beliefs, how we're not going to be the first people, the first Christians to be considered extreme. In fact, I think Jeremiah was probably a pretty extreme person. Uh, Daniel was probably considered extreme in the Babylonian empire. Jesus was extreme and had some very different ideas that the world wasn't ready to grapple with. You know, and even Paul had some pretty extreme things to say. And so it's trying to remind Christians that we can't let these perceptions dissuade us from confidence in what we know to be true and what we know actually will lead to life. Right. And the book walks through all of the difficult conversations that all of us are having to have these days with our children, with our friends, our parents, our colleagues. So we talk about racism. You know, we specifically really talk to the church about how, where we've gone wrong and how we must do better on, on that particular topic. We talk about sexuality and a lot of the confusion around gay marriage, around how Christians in the church should respond to the LGBT community. Uh, we speak to religious freedom. We talk about family. We talk about life and not just the abortion conversation, but euthanasia and a lot of the coming questions that over the next decade, every Christian needs to be prepared to answer. And David and I really wrote this because we both have teenagers now in our homes. Mm -hmm. And we said, let's write a book that if we handed it to our children, 
now or five years from now, we feel like it really carries on the faith that we've grown up with, that we've learned, that we've studied, um, that has been true to the faith throughout history. And let's try to help them apply it to the conversations they're going to be having for the years ahead. And so that's what the book Good Faith is. And people can learn more about it at goodfaithbook.org. Um, and it's obviously available in, in bookstores everywhere. But we've just found a lot of churches reading it uh, this fall. I mean, we were having you know thousands of books ordered by pastors and churches who were saying, we've got to grapple with these conversations. Our people are hungry for it. And this is going to really help us bring up some things that maybe aren't as conversations about it yeah and, and i i can uh i can strongly recommend this book as well um i absolutely uh enjoyed reading the different uh, conversations specific conversations but really what i think most people on this uh they're listening to this podcast will really i think some of the things will surprise you um, that so many people in our society have a perception that faith-driven organizations are irrelevant to a charitable society. Um, that, that seems just completely counterintuitive when you know and you've been working around the world. Um, and yeah. then to talk about things like 45% of atheists, agnostics, and religious unaffiliated in America agree with the statement that Christianity, just simply believing the Christian faith, is extremist. Um, you know, I mean, those things really, when you start looking at that, it really opens your eyes to, um, what you might be going into when you have a conversation with somebody that you may not know. And I love your little anecdotes, anecdotes and stories throughout the book, whether it's your, your kids at school or you in, you know, New York or, you know, just other conversations with people, you know, off the cuff remarks that people make, um, that lead to great relationships, but also could lead to some uncomfortable situations if you're not ready for them. And, I think one of the quotes that uh, that I want you to talk to a little bit is it says in broad strokes, many people think it would be difficult to have a conversation with anyone who's not a part of their group. Um, many of us, uh, in other words, find it challenging to connect and have meaningful, meaningful conversations with others. The state of our union is one of disunion. And then you go into talking about a tension created by this disunion and really the lack of our uh, shared center in our culture. I want you to just talk to that a little bit, um, and then really after that, I want to get into um, how we can kind of engage in the midst of this disunion. Well, uh, it's essentially what you spoke there in that quote was something David and I came to find through this research became so glaringly obvious, is that in American life, we are becoming little tribes, and because of fear many times of the other uh, because of not understanding one another or maybe um, not seeing it modeled really well, civility, how do we get along despite having some differences? It's causing our country to divide into these little subgroups where we really become just defensive of our own little group and we're not as interested to get outside of our own tribe. We're not as as willing to go kind of the extra mile to get to know somebody or to listen to their opinions. Um, and this is not what makes up a fabric for a thriving union. Uh, this actually creates disunity. It, it causes us to really become less human than I think we were designed to be by not listening to others. Um, and by losing that shared center, the thing that truly can bring a nation together, or in the past we saw in American life, did do something to bring some cohesion. Uh, we're finding that, you know, the country's more divided than ever. In fact, at our Q Commons event, 
um, just recently we asked our attendees, um, and, and 85% of them, they had like four options of how to describe this and they pick the most kind of obvious extreme, um, phrasing to describe how they feel. And 85% of them said, our nation's more divided today than it's ever been in my lifetime. Hmm. And the average age of our participants, you know, are in the mid to late thirties. And they're saying, look, in 40 years, basically, we've never seen anything like this. And so the opportunity though, then is huge. It's just enormous for the church to step into that, for for Christians to step into that and realize that actually 70% of Americans want to be in this moderate middle, this place where they can see the good in other people's views, where they can get along despite differences. Uh, but that doesn't get a lot of airtime. We don't talk about it a lot. And you know, one of the things uh, our research study pointed out was 95% of Americans do agree on something. And that, that thing they agree on is that each side of, of the ideological positions, the right and the left, demonize one another so severely that it makes finding common ground impossible. Hmm. And so that's, I mean, nine out of 10, nine and a half out of 10 Americans believe that's what's happening. So they're wow. smart. They're awake to this. Um, but seven out of 10 are saying, that's not what we want. That's not who we are. That's not where we want to go. And so what we are saying at Q to our Q Commons leaders throughout all these different cities around this country and the world through good faith and the work David Kinnaman and I are doing is we as the church, and and, and I mean that broadly, Christians, have an opportunity to lead right now by learning how to listen, by learning how to find common ground, by practicing civility, by modeling it, by taking risk with people we disagree with to have real conversations. Right. Uh, and and it actually will show up and, and be a light in the midst of, of a moment that's feeling quite dark for a lot of people. And so when these kinds of moments take place, Phil, I think my, my gut reaction is to say, now, where is God working? Like, what's the opportunity here? Certainly he's not, you know, surprised by the situation or the circumstances. And he always wants his church to rise up and and to actually be the church. And I think if we do that now, it actually will stand out more than it has in decades as the church gets back to its basics. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that uh, as this this uh, episode is is going to be releasing on Election Day, um, which is no accident. But uh, one of the things I want to talk to you about, we know if there's one thing we know about the election, we don't know who's going to win at this point. Um, but what we do know is that there's going to be division afterwards. Um, unfortunately, uh, as you talked about, I think that that is pretty accurate a description of where our country is. And, uh, I think you're, you know, you're right. Most people don't want it. I mean, just, just look all over social media and it's, it's a, it's, it's, it's ugly right now, but most people are saying, I just can't wait till it's over, which is not really a good, uh, I don't think that's a good thing that that's really the, let's just get out of this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would want you to speak right now and you talk about it so much in the book and that's really what the book's about, but how we can effectively engage people in the midst of this tension, really with people who view us as irrelevant and extreme, who seem to disagree with us deeply, often with vitriol and hatred, um, or so it seems. That's at least the perceived reality. Um, How can we engage that um, as good faith Christians? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question of the hour is like, how do we move forward? And I agree, the nation will be divided. We know that half the nation, you know, wakes up um, November 9th and, and feels misrepresented, feels like this isn't their country anymore. feels like they don't have anybody that, uh, shares their view that's in power. Uh, it can be a very disheartening feeling. I think for Christians though, what we have to recognize is that 
the solution isn't going to be found in just a head of state and in electing the appropriate person. Um, we get caught up in this particular election year and there's a lot of pressure to put a lot of our eggs in that basket of, man, if we get the right president, things will change. But we've seen over decades moments where you know people will disagree like that the right president was in that represent the people of faith and and yet it didn't necessarily lead to the kind of flourishing or the results that many anticipated i think what uh, is very simple here is to recognize that we have an opportunity to kind of get back to basics right now i think the church is feeling very fractured i think we've realized that putting our faith and hope in politics and electoral cycles and uh, presidents is not the way forward. It's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to be the future of the church to rely on any kind of political party to represent our viewpoints and culture. And I think the American people are waking up to saying government isn't going to solve these problems. Government's not going to solve the race division that's in our country. Government's not going to um, solve uh, the poverty problem in our country. The church is going to have to be a, a critical part of our social fabric. And one of the things we actually uh, released, and people could find this at um, qideas.org slash six practices, and it's part of our podcast, is that we've created a series called the Six Practices of the Church. And what we've been doing is preparing for this moment and saying, if we go back throughout history, the church has lived through a lot of different cultural circumstances, and it's done really well, and it's thrived. How is that possible? How has that been? What can we relearn in our moment right now about from history, about how we ought to move forward? And this seven-part series is a combination of talks as well as a podcast uh, that I did with Dr. Greg Thompson, uh, who's really a cultural sociologist. He understands how the church has moved forward in history, and he also um, is, is a great guide. And so we work through these six different practices that have always been through to the true to the church. And it's things like we understand and embrace the context that we're in. We, we know what we believe, like we're committed to our confession. Um, but we also do things like practice hospitality. And I think this is going to be one that's so practical for all of our listeners to understand that having a family over for dinner to your home right now in the next 60 days in your neighborhood would actually be a really great thing to do. Like inviting the other, inviting the neighbor, inviting people into your physical life, being embodied uh, is going to be essential. Uh, and so we work through these six different practices and try to help people fine tune something that David and I wrote about in good faith, which is that there's kind of this formula. And, and we use these three words to describe the formula that you want to fine tune. And it's that we have to love really, really well. So love is the preeminent virtue of the Christian faith. We should lead with that, not with fear. But secondly, our belief. So, so what we believe really does matter because if you don't know your theology, if you don't know God's design for human flourishing, for questions around things like sexuality, which are so broad within our culture, um, questions about how you actually help your neighbor and love your neighbor well, uh, questions about family and children. If we don't know what scripture teaches us about these things, then we actually don't know how to love people well. Uh, and sometimes we can actually love, think we're loving people and we're actually leading them down a path of destruction if it's not founded and grounded in the truth of scripture. And so belief matters. But then finally, how we live matters. I mean, the fact that our lives model and bear witness to a different way of life, um, a, a way of life that, that just has the scent and fragrance of Jesus all over it. 
Uh, and when we get these three things fine-tuned, and we're not just so obsessed with loving the lead, but we don't know what we believe, or beliefs being what we lead with, and we just tell everybody what we believe, but we don't know how to love people well, uh, we create all kinds of problems. But if we could love really well, know what we believe, and then make sure we're living and modeling it, I think that's the kind of good faith and, and the kind of faithful presence that the church is going to need to be in the days ahead. Yeah, and I, I think that's so good because so often, you know, I mean, it's it's funny that so many people talk about the Bible just being a rule book, but you know what? There's so much stuff in there that just flat out makes sense, and it's there for a reason, and and it's just really good stuff. Not surprising. That's why we believe it. But this idea of love, believe, live, really, it's truth and love, right? You know, it's truth and love, and live it out. And so often, like you said, people try to. People focus typically on the truth or the love too much and, and don't mix the two as, as Christ modeled and as Christ, uh, you know, discipled the disciples to do. So I, I definitely, I, I absolutely appreciate that. And and the other thing that you talk about, or a couple other things I want to get into, um, is how important tone is um, when engaging others. Um, can you just speak to that a little bit? Yeah, tone matters so much, and, and I think it's it's now people are paying attention to it a lot more, our tone and our posture. And it's not that it's some gimmick, you know, where you just try to say something in a nicer way. It's, it's actually a genuineness about respecting other human beings and respecting the other person and respecting points of view uh, and treating people in the way you want to be treated. It's, it's a true love of neighbor activity to um, actually have conversation with people and to um, practice civility. And, and I think it actually honors God and glorifies God. It, it takes a bit of the pride and power out of seeing our role in these things and making too much of them. Um, but I think it also allows people to really hear what you're saying. Whereas in the world today where there's so much shouting and, and as Americans, again, as I stated earlier, 95% think the extremes are getting all the airtime. Uh, because of how they shout, how they say it, because they don't mind, you know, kind of mixing it up in a way that that's combative. And for some, that's really entertaining. I think in the midst of that, what people really are longing for is to be listened to, to be heard, to have conversations. I mean, our research has shown so many things like um, and it's a contentious issues around gay marriage, for example, that if you just come out in a conversation and tell somebody, I think gay marriage is wrong, for example, um, it shuts down the conversation. There's no conversation. But if you actually begin the conversation by saying, hey, I've, I've studied this. I've really been thinking a lot about it. And I have some concerns about gay marriage. And, and I'm not sure that this is the best way. And what, tell me what you think. And you listen. And then you're able to have a little bit of a conversation that two out of three people say they'd carry on that conversation. It would be a good conversation because there was an openness. There was an empathy. There was a humility in what we believe that doesn't just assume everybody has to believe it or should believe it or does believe it. Um, but that part of belief is that, uh, we have faith and we believe and we want to persuade people in a, uh, through kindness, um, not through being dogmatic. And so that's why I think tone and posture today, you know, our new generation of people are so sensitive to it. You know, you could credit that to a politically correct kind of environment and culture they've been raised in, you know, some more negatively would say, you know, children have been coddled and not really been exposed well to that difference is okay. But however you slice it, if you want to be heard, you're going to have to communicate in a way that actually respects and honors the other person and doesn't just assume 
you're the smartest person in the room and you're there to educate them. Right. And I think social media doesn't help either with uh, people being able to just throw anything out there and tone is really impossible to convey even with an emoji. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, which I think you and I both kind of subscribe to the, the, from what I've seen with your interaction is to, to really not engage dialogue on social media because it's not the place for it. Um, yeah, I think I think we found, and this was—I don't think we needed research to show this—but two out of three American adults believe that social media is making us less social. Mm. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we understand that. And um, but you know, it's it's funny, Phil. I mean, you think about it. Social media has done so much good in the world mm-hmm. to give people voice and platform, but that also creates a lot of challenges in the world because. You know, it used to be if somebody had an opinion that you were going to listen to, it was you knew they had studied something, you knew they were well read, you knew they had probably reflected on it, and then finally they're communicating, you know, either in a book or an article or something that took them some time to process. Um, and yet now, you know, your Facebook feed or Twitter, you know, it's it's filled with people who probably haven't reflected. Some people, you know, obviously some do, but it's not a reflective kind of medium. And so you just anybody has a voice everybody's just assuming that they're an expert and you almost can read it like they're an expert because it's so much information flying at you. And so it does take a great deal of wisdom and moderation and, uh, filtering to really, I think, uh, get the most out of social media and all the things that it can provide. Absolutely. I think, uh, was it Shane hips a long time ago at a Q conference said everything has its shadow. And I think that, that is very true. Um, I want to move into, uh, talking about the right questions that you have talked about and you one of my favorite talks you've given at Q was talking about these four questions that we need to ask when addressing the difficult issues in our society and really I've heard you say it as how you want anybody going to Q to engage the world really uh, can you go through those four questions um, and then share the story yeah. of how really applying those four questions I think is how you did it to um, really address one of the biggest issues we have uh, in in connection with abortion and Down syndrome, um, which is very personal to you and Rebecca. How you have applied those four questions to that issue, um, and uh, yeah, and so really made some I change. think uh, Phil, the four questions really helpful, and they're very simple, um, but essentially have helped people start to understand. You know, and, and especially with Q Commons, our leaders in these cities, we say think about these questions as you consider the topics you're going to address. Um, and the first question is, what is wrong? And in the culture, you say, what is wrong? And the Christian's role is to stop and confront it. Um, we have a role to play to hold back the evil that otherwise would overwhelm creation. And so we should do that, though, in very creative ways. We shouldn't just point it out. We actually should be creating um, and doing something about it and giving people an alternative to the, you know, the things that are wrong in our communities. Um, but secondly, we also have to be pretty good at answering the question, what is right? You know, what is, what is good here? Um, and we should really celebrate those things and, and cultivate those things because those are the types of things that our world needs to know about. You know, Christians should be tastemakers in our communities for the things that are true and good and beautiful, whether it's music and art or restaurants and food, uh, or businesses and justice projects and campaigns that are really making our communities and cities better. And I think that's one we could do a lot better in, um, frankly, because there's a lot of good happening in our world that doesn't have the label Christian on it. And we shouldn't be fearful of celebrating those things and recognizing that that's God's common grace moving forward in the world and moving forward many times in 
human beings created in his image, either, even if they don't recognize it uh, as such. And so let's, let's be a part of those things. Let's not pull away from them and recreate the wheel in every case. Um, third, though, we have to ask, what is confused? And uh, when you ask this question, you go, what in the world right now and in our culture and in the conversations, does it just feel people are a little perplexed by they don't know how to move forward? They're not sure what the answer is. Um, and the, the role of the Christian is to clarify and to compel people forward. Um, and I think in, in, uh, in our journey, we've seen that happen on a variety of topics and issues that we talk about at our Q conference where there's a lot of confusion culturally. And there needs to be sort of a point in time where you clarify that and say, hey, here's what we believe. Here's what Christians have always believed. And here's how it applies to today. Uh, and then finally, the, the last question, sometimes this is the most difficult, is what is missing uh, and you know, what's not happening in our culture right now or in our world or in our community that should be. And that takes a great deal of imagination, um, because you have to imagine something that you haven't seen before. Uh, but when you say what is missing, you know, you re- you respond by saying, well, we need to create that and we need to catalyze it. We need to help other people experience it. Uh, in our own journey, Phil, you know, Rebecca and I's firstborn son, his name is Cade, was born 15 years ago and actually uh, was diagnosed with Down syndrome a few days after birth. And for Rebecca and I, that just meant a new journey. He was our firstborn. We weren't expecting it. We just didn't know. Uh, But as I started to get more educated and learn about uh, these amazing children, you know, one in 800 births in uh, the U.S. uh, is a child with Down syndrome, we, we started to realize that, man, a lot of people just don't have great information about these children. And uh, when you Google Down syndrome, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of sense to, to new moms or maybe a person that's pregnant that's receiving that diagnosis when the baby's in utero that, that essentially suggests that this is going to be awful for you. You should terminate your pregnancy. Um, it's not going to be good for the family, for the siblings. You're going to have to give up your job. You know, it's, it's, there's just a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. And so we came together with other families and said, hey, this is confused for people. They really don't know what's happening here. We need to bring some clarity to what it really means to parent a child with Down syndrome. Um, And then we also realized something was missing, that uh, people just don't have good resources. Uh, And it still answered this question of what was wrong. And and what we knew was wrong is that 91% of parents who found out they had a child with Down syndrome in the pregnancy moved to terminate the child and to have an abortion. And so we knew that now 90% of these children are not even making it into life because there's a something missing and a story that's not being told. And so that drove a whole community of us to come together and say, let's create a book. And so we created this book called Understanding a Down Syndrome Diagnosis um, that took beautiful photographs. We had a great photographer come in, a great designer, copywriter, and essentially created this you know 50-plus page booklet that helped walk people through a new parent or a parent-to-be of what it looked like to have a child who's a baby and an infant all the way to like a three-year-old and five-year-old and 10-year-old. And we had beautiful pictures of these kids like skateboarding with their friends and Mm. reading with their siblings and attending ballet classes and just doing all the things that all of us can do and all of our children can do. Um, And and started to open up that story and imagination for people. Uh, We also created a booklet helping doctors because our research started to show that doctors, when they delivered the diagnosis, they didn't really use the right language. They were very apologetic when they were talking about it. They essentially were saying, we've got really bad news to share with you that mm-hmm. you're going to have Down syndrome. And so we created a booklet to help them know how to deliver the diagnosis. And so all of those resources now, it's been a decade since that happened, 
are available at a, at a website called lettercase.org, lettercase.org. Uh, and now it's being recommended um, across America by uh, the Obstetrics Association of America that's saying, hey, in every one of our offices, geneticists included, these are the books that we think parents should be given in order to um, process this decision and understand what's at stake and have the opportunity to meet other parents who are going through this. Uh, so it's just one example. And, and Rebecca and I were just one small part of this mm -hmm. vision. Um, but it's been cool to see that just keep going forward and gain momentum and a good example of what it means, I think, to create culture versus just critiquing what's wrong, but try to create something that can really make a difference. And, and we're seeing it make a difference now. Right. And I think it's another example of the kingdom collaboration that uh, has come out of these questions, has come out of asking these questions to realize that, you know, any of these things, any of these issues in orphan care, any of these issues that you've talked about today on the show, um, any of the issues that people are working on out there are going to require collaboration. They're going to require really engaging these issues and engaging others that you may not agree with or may not agree with you. Um, but, uh, I just get so excited to see projects like that, that actually come to fruition with people working together that actually make change. Um, and today I just, you know, speaking of social media, one of the good uses was a video I was able to watch today and, um, about a woman in Argentina who is teaching preschool with Down syndrome. She has Down syndrome and teaching preschool class. And it's just a beautiful story. And, you know, things like that, that, uh, as you said, 91% of, of these children were, were being aborted and, and it's, it's tragic, but to come into that tragedy. And like you said, to say what is confused and to clarify and compel and to create and catalyze things to not just stop at any one of those things. Because so too often, I think in, in our friend Andy Crouch's book, uh, Culture Making, he talks about too often we are just criticizing and we're just condemning, you know, the culture rather than creating. And uh, creating and cultivating is what we're created to do. So I love how Q's been able to do that. I love how you've been able to do that um, with your wife and uh, so many others. Um, but uh, the last couple questions, Gabe, and I know that we could go on for a long, long time, but we have two more questions that we ask all of our guests, and I'm excited to hear your responses. Um, the first one is, uh, what have you listened to, read, or watched recently that's most impacted your thinking um, on the issues that we've discussed today? Well, um, gosh, I would say over the last two years, uh, part of the series that we've developed, the Six Practices of the Church, came out of a lot of learning um, and reading a lot of books, you know, just historically about the church, trying to understand, you know, topics such as hospitality and others that have always been true, you know, since the monastics and even before that in the early church. You know, Greg Thompson, who, who hasn't written a book on this, but who's been a, a real friend and a conversation partner, has, has just had a great deal, has added so much to my thinking on this and, and helped even shape how I'm thinking about cue and the opportunity uh, that we sit within. Um, and I would say, you know, I'm, I'm constantly, I'm somebody who's trying to read a lot about the context. I, I really am probably a context junkie. I, I like to understand the landscape uh, that we're in. So I'm reading a book, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which is a great memoir talking about kind of the white middle class uh, or lower class kind of poor in America that's uh, starting to get a voice this year in the Trump campaign. And I'm trying to understand, you know, that I'm also, you know, reading about technology and trying to understand where that's going from people like Kevin Kelly, who's the co-founder of Wired magazine. Uh, so uh, I, I have a variety of books that I'm kind of always 
reading and, and, uh, and I try not to just read new books, but try to read, uh, old books as well. I'm in the middle of a book by E.M. Bounds on prayer that right. is just rocking my world because he, you know, wrote it 150 years ago and, uh, he just had so much to say about the life of prayer and how much that actually is what moves things and moves the heart of God. And, you know, we should spend our hours in the morning in prayer more than trying to just accomplish activity because there's so much more God can do, um, through just our surrender to that. So a lot of things I'm just learning in my own, own life and trying to walk out and figure out how to schedule correctly to do that. And I'm, I'm tripping all the time and not getting it right. But those, those are some of the things that I'm currently trying to press into. Yeah. And I, I love what you said in the book is a conversation. I believe it was with Chuck Colson about how there's nothing new under the sun and how he encouraged you said, you know, you really need to read some old books to, uh, yeah. <laughs> to understand these things. You know, it's only Chuck Colson can do in his late seventies <laughs> sitting across from a, a cafe table, having coffee and just said, Gabe, you really need to read some old books. Like none of this stuff is new. The church has already been through so many of these topics and issues that you're asking me about. Um, and, and it really forced me to go back and start reading a lot more historically, uh, which has just been a gift to me in the last several years. Yeah, I've, I've been doing that myself with a, a lot of philosophers, a lot of different things from, you know, pre-Christ times. And yeah, it's so true. These 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 things are not new as we, we think we've progressed so far. And and yet we're we're unfortunately living history over and over again. Um, in some cases, and fortunately in some cases. So I think yeah. revisiting some of those ancient practices like you talked about, I think are such such good things. Remember, uh, Phyllis Tickle had some great talks on that um, throughout. Also, can you just share real quick on that note um, how people can, can get a hold of some of the old talks at Q that are still as important today as they were than they were given um, yeah. and uh, be able to engage those conversations even though they weren't able to be at the conferences? Yeah, so we post most of our talks online for free so that anybody can access them. So qideas.org, when you go there, there's a way to search talks by topic, by author and speaker name. Um, we also do something called Q Weekly where people can subscribe and every week we'll send you an email where we curate you know, anywhere from three to five pieces of content from talks to articles that we've worked on or commissioned around specific topics. And so... Our podcast is a way people can, while they're running or, you know, can, can, uh, in the car, just kind of hear a, a short nine minute or 18 minute talk that our talks are always quite short and timed. Uh, and then we discuss it on there and, and talk about kind of, we're just trying to find as many ways to help the, the Christian out there who says, look, I care about my faith applying to the world I now live in and we hope it helps them. And then finally, Really, the big the big moment for Q every year is the Q event, Q 2017, uh, in Nashville, April 26 to 28, and that's Phil, where you've been, and where we we just start to you start to find so many other people who care about various different issues. You know, whether it's you and and your focus and intentionality around orphan care and vulnerable children, you know, or it's somebody who's an architect, or it's somebody in media or journalism who's really trying. They're at the top of their game. They're trying to do the best that they can in that. Pers- particular space, but their faith's very important to them and they want to know how to do it well, how to live with conviction, but also engage with credibility with their neighbors who don't believe anything about the Christian faith. And so I'd invite all your listeners like check out qideas.org slash Q2017 2017 to see more about that and consider joining us and just coming out and being a part of it. Meet Phil there, you know, and <laughs> have real conversations around, you know, the 
the very difficult conversations we'll all be having in 2017. We'll address over 30 different topics that um, really will, I think, speak to the moment. Uh, and so, especially post-election, as the nation starts to rebound and into a, a whatever the new normal is going to become, uh, it's going to be more important than ever for Christians to find one another and to be thinking well together and to be learning from one another and creating together uh, as we live into kind of a new season, I think, for the church. Yeah, I agree. I will be there, and I look forward to meeting some of you folks out there there because um, I do think it, it's it's very very important. If nothing else, uh, Nashville is a fantastic city that uh, is really my second home since I went to school there. So uh, you can't beat uh, can't beat Nashville in the spring. Um, so the last question we have: uh, What one person has most impacted your thinking on the issues? Uh, surrounding orphan care and what we're talking about today and uh, just really um, what person has impacted you the most? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple, a couple like, meaning a, a husband and a wife that have probably impacted me the most uh, and recently around this, uh, Brian and Julie Mavis uh, in Colorado, uh, who essentially just came upon this challenge of understanding how much uh, children within their own state in Colorado were not um, having any opportunity to move into foster care or what they call forever families and decided to do something about it and get the church involved with the government and start to tell all the stories of the foster kids uh, through these beautiful videos that allow the children to communicate for themselves. And, you know, it kind of turns out that you get to know the foster kid themselves. You actually start to open your heart to what it could mean to help and to serve them or for families to just come alongside other adoptive families or foster families and, and encourage and support. Um, and, and what's been inspiring though to me on this is how that's now growing into this movement that's taking place in Virginia now, Oklahoma, and now in Tennessee, our own home state. Just last night, I sat with 20 leaders uh, from government leaders, people in the arts community, in the church community, and we all came together to have this conversation about how are we going to help the 8,000 uh, children who are currently under government, you know, care in this state actually find homes and find families. And it was a very strategic conversation that involves all the sectors, which I love because it's not just in no one place can get this done. It's going to require us all working together uh, and the governor's on board. And we're starting to see momentum around this uh, movement called America, America's Kids Belong. And um, it's just fun to see how one person following that calling in their own neighborhood, in their own city, their own state uh, has been so successful that now other states want to adopt it. And, and I think that momentum is going to just keep growing and, and completely change the landscape in America for how we take care of our own children. And so that's that's been that, that couple, Brian and Julie, have just been very impacting to me. Yeah, I got to meet them at uh, the Q Denver uh, last year, and and I agree with everything you said. And and you can probably pick up their talk and listen to it online where where Gabe had pointed to, um, yep. uh, qideas.org. And we'll have all this on the show notes, so you guys out there can just go to the show notes and see all these different websites and and uh, and books to be able to engage with all these different things. I, I I'm very much looking forward to people thinking deeper. Um, on all these issues and Brian and Julie definitely um, are inspiring and uh, and you can learn a lot from them 
So Gabe, thanks again for your time. Thanks for your wisdom that you've shared with us today. Uh, I look forward to seeing the impact that the good faith and Q continue to make um, in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, and so thank you. Thank Rebecca um, for all that you're doing and uh, for the encouragement I know you bring to me and so many others. Uh, you're welcome, man. And thanks for what you're doing to just keep inspiring people and educating them and exposing them to this kind of thinking is so important and the commitment to orphan care and to children who truly need families is probably one of the most important ones for the church to lead on and so thanks for being one of those pioneers in that space well i hope that uh you were able to learn as much as i did from gabe um and hopefully it encourages you in the midst of the uh, where we are right now, if you're in America, we're in a very divisive time in our country. Um, around the world, I imagine it's not a whole lot different in the midst of different things going on wherever you're listening to this. And so I just hope that you can pick up the book Good Faith to get a little bit more context for all the stuff that Gabe was talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that I actually also with, with Q, I've gone the last probably seven or eight years and it's been such great, uh, content for me to challenge my mind, to challenge my thinking. I actually did a blog post, which I'll link to in the show notes on kind of why I go to Q, uh, this podcast and, you know, a lot of the relationships I've had with different people on this podcast have come out of that. So the networking is phenomenal. I just encourage everyone, whether it's Q or a different conference that you're able to go to and kind of commit to and get to know people through um, is something that I strongly encourage you to do because it'll challenge your thinking and it'll grow you as a person. So um, Kelly, what'd you think about uh, that interview? Well, first I would like to say, I think it would do anyone benefit to spend some time on the Q website and just hear some of the talks. And I feel like it's Ted talks. (laughs) It's kind of has that feel. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just on a variety of topics and, and so whether it's culture, art, faith, um, just all those different things. And so it, I love it. I think it's just such a different uh, perspective of how Christians engage culture and how we do it uh, with with grace, but how we do it with um, with just coming to understand and, and, and have that posture. So I thought his how he brought up, up tone and just the tone that we take and how that is able to um, either... I mean, you think about it, and when you come across as judgmental and harsh and extreme in your thinking, and I mean, that's such a turnoff to people. And so I think our tone and how we speak and how we listen um, do so much for advancing the gospel around the world. So, um, and really kind of get past a lot of those stereotypes that people have about people who love Jesus. What about you, Phil? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that I, I said a lot of it actually even through that, throughout the interview. I, I, I think that the four questions that he talked about, the what uh, what is wrong, what is confused, what is right, and what is missing, I mean, those things he talks about, he has a, t- uh, a Q talk on that, and I agree. I mean, the, 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 the short, <laughs> some, of the, some of the things I love about the fact of the Q talks are the fact that they're short. They're nine, 18 minutes max, but most of them are nine minutes. Some are three minutes even. In the past, they've done three-minute talks, and it's really great to hear people really bring things into the concise. They're one big idea. And I think that those four,
core questions are ways to engage. I said it in my, in the interview, like I, I actually start my class, my course, the first class of the semester in my course on, on the spectrum of orphan care with those four questions. I want my students to be thinking about every issue that we're talking about, um, in those terms. And because I think that that idea to create and catalyze at the end, the what is missing question is so critical in all this work that we're doing because things are missing. I don't care what you're doing. Something is missing. And we are, we are image bearers. We are creators. We are cultivators. Um, That's what we're created to do. And so I think that, um, you know, the book is fantastic. Again, I, you know, I've read it I actually read it a couple of times in preparation for the interview. And, uh, it's something that everyone out there can learn from. And I think that if we engage each other really simply at the, at the base level, just really with an under, a, an interest in understanding others, you know, I think that will go so far. Some of the things that blew my mind were how people, um, the perceptions of people, you know, the fact that people think that if charity, if faith-based organizations were to go away, charitable work around the world wouldn't change much. Mm. That blows my mind. Most Mm -hmm. of the work being done around the world is being done by faith-based organizations. People that are doing it know that. But the perception around, at least in the United States, is that's not the case. Like it was 60 something percent thought that. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. And then to think that, you know, so many people simply being a Christian is seen as extreme. So when you start looking at things like that, we got to really take a step back and go, okay, how can we actually have conversations with people? If that's their thing. And I think there's a lot of stories throughout the book that, that, a lot of people out there, a lot of you folks out there would relate to. And so, um, yeah. And I think especially given where we are in our history right now, this is a very important, uh, conversation. And I think it's a very, very important topic for us to take very seriously. So what do you think? I totally agree. And just, you know, I think he, I love those four questions. I think we can apply them in any area of our life um, or any, I think about just even my family of like, what's missing? Um, What are we doing well? I mean, I love that. And just being able to apply that across a variety of of spectrums and environments is is really exciting to me, really. So, Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Phil and Kelly recommend? Yeah, before we do that, though, Kelly, you forgot about the thoughts from the field, but that's okay. We, we will uh, go ahead and do that uh, first, and then we'll hit the, the recommendations. But the, I know I'm excited about the recommendations, too. But today we're going to do the thoughts from the field first, and, and that is from uh, Herbie Newell. Um, with Lifeline Children's Services, and Herbie's a great friend, and he um, also was able to answer at the at the Christian Alliance for Orphans Summit uh, this question from me, which was, you know, what is one of the biggest issues that we're facing in the world today in orphan care, and how can we address it? And so here is what Herbie has to say about that. My name is Herbie Newell with Lifeline Children's Services. And I believe the truly biggest issue we have in orphan care is that we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We can't lose focus of the gospel. We can't get caught up in the needs of the kids, the needs of the families, the needs, the physical needs without first addressing the spiritual needs. It's essential that we not lose our heart, not lose our faith, and not lose our stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Well, we thank Kirby for sharing that with us and just appreciate the work that Lifeline is doing uh, around the world. And as you can tell, I was super excited about this next segment that I was ready to rush into it. Um, So, Phil, why don't you share uh, the book that you're wanting to recommend? Yeah, so this week on uh, the Phil and Kelly recommends, I, I, got, I got a book. Um, it's actually by an author uh, about himself that uh, Gabe had Gabe had talked about. He was he was at the recent Q Commons event um, that just happened in October, and it's Lecrae, and he has his autobiography called Unashamed, and it's a it's a just a great um, story. I actually listened to it because I, he read it. And it was something that's all that to me is something that's always very powerful to hear um, someone telling their own story. And so it was basically him for about six hours um, just telling his story and challenging me. I listened to it with my son, my 13 year old son, and uh, we had a lot of great conversations out of it as well. And so strongly recommend this book. Um, I think that Lecrae's story is one that is just in, in very inspiring. It's encouraging, it's challenging, it's sharpening, but it's also one that it's, it's raw, you know, it's not some, you know, just little, um, it, it's, it's some tough stuff. It's some tough stuff, uh, that again, I think that if you're going to read it, uh, with your teenager, have your teenager read it, I, str- I encourage you to do it with them so you can talk through these issues. Um, but I, I do recommend doing that because I think that it, it brings up real issues as we heard last week with, with Dwight Taylor and his childhood and his upbringing. Um, you know, Lecrae was a guy that I don't think, you know, he'd probably have some issues with his younger self, you know, dating any daughter that he has, you know, so that, that is something that, um, is, is encouraging to see how God is using him in the lives of his children, in the lives of other people, so many, so many people around the world. If you haven't heard of, heard of Lecrae, you probably haven't been uh, listening over the last couple of years. The guy has great music, but he's just a great man that has having a great impact um, in a lot of different places. So again, the book Unashamed, it'll be in the show notes. And, you know, I hope again that uh, as you listen to this podcast today, you're, you're encouraged and you're challenged to think deeper, to think better about how you are seeking to love orphaned and vulnerable children all around the world. So thanks again for the download. And I, I just hope and pray that you have a fantastic week. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.